Hey everybody, it's Dave Fitch and Jeff Holesclaw from the Griffith Conference Room at Northern Seminary on a beautiful, and I do mean beautiful, November afternoon. What temperature do you think it is out there, Jeff? 71. It's no, the last 75. four days that uh, are going to be nice here in Chicago. Yeah, how can you know? How can you even know that? Uh, I mean, it is November. I mean, last week you would have said last three days of beautiful weather ever in Chicago until next spring. And look what we got here, folks. We got summer in November. Just another reason why you should never think of leaving Chicago for the state of California. Or you should come to Chicago. Or you should just get up and leave California and come to Chicago and come study at Northern (laughs) Seminary. So what's up on our topic for today's podcast? So today we want to talk about ideology, sometimes called ideology. And what the heck does that even mean? And why even think about ideology? I could say ideology, you say ideology. So like in theology, you have to learn vocab. Like yeah. you need to learn what the words uh, Christology mean and soteriology. Especially and if you're in your class. And ecclesiology. And these are shorthand for uh, important concepts that you study in, uh, in thinking and living with God. From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. And so, but a lot of times, ideology is not one of those vocab words that you learn to speak of theology. So why are we talking about it today? Why yeah, well, okay, so it's become a big part of, um, I don't want to make it a big deal, but it's become a bigger part of my repertoire in terms of understanding culture. And what we're up against, or I shouldn't say what we're up against, but what we must get engaged in to really understand what's going on uh, in the struggles and antagonisms of our surrounding culture and then again, what happens inside the church as well. So ideology describes basically, I mean, Marx called it the false consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. He said uh, that there's a false consciousness that we need to critique because we are unaware. It's the bourgeois, the people in power, who have made us think this is the way it is and why we must do things the way it's always been done. Have you ever, ever been in a church where you've, like, you know, hit the wall, and this is the way it's always been done. We must do it this way. The world will come to an end if we stop doing it this way. I'll give you an example. Sunday evening church service growing up in the late 60s and 70s. People were saying, ah, no one's coming. But there were people who said, no way! I mean, this is like orthodox, creedal orthodoxy, Sunday evening service. Why? Because we've always done it. Well, we do the same things on Sunday night that we do on Sunday morning. Doesn't matter. We got to keep doing it. Have you ever like encountered the the hard resistance of change and that this is the way we've always done it and this extreme attachment, even identity around certain ideas that are very difficult to dislodge in leading the church to some place new or different. Are you asking me specifically? I'm asking you specifically. I thought that was a rhetorical question to kind of lure in our audience. I was like, wow, you're really growing on your broadcasting skills. You're like really bringing in the audience. So, but ideology or ideology, however you want to say it. Let's stick with ideology ideology for now. Is usually 
um, more unspoken even than what you said. So it's more unspoken. Why, this is why we need to kind of think about it, to look at it, because it structures the way we think. So I, ideology, ideology, it's the ideas, a study of ideas, but they're usually ideas that we're not thinking of, but they control how we live, how we have expectations, um, how we engage in conflict or disagreements and things like that. A lot of times ideologies help control um, our assumptions and expectations of a situation, even when we're not. Exactly. Even when we're not, we've been actually ensconced. We've been initiated. Uh, Althusser would say we've been interpellated into a... That was a heavy word, wasn't it? That was. That means you're, you're given a name. And, and you, you, you recognize yourself in this ideology. Well, to give you an example, um, the most obvious one these days is uh, G- LGBTQ or gay, lesbian, same-sex marriage, all the, all the issues surrounding alternative sexualities. And we get caught in um, the way that that has been scripted, that discourse, that ideology. And it's usually like this. You either have to be uh, against it Entirely, and that means you're a Christian for some people, or you uh, are affirming. And for the affirming people, if you're not affirming and you have any kind of open space to work this out, you are one of those fundamentalists, and it immediately sets us off against one another. And that's the first sign that an ideology is at work. And you have no choice but to enter it on the ideology's terms. And so we need to learn how to discern the ideologies, so as to not get caught up in the violence and the antagonisms and the way we are being shaped and formed ourselves and the way we feel, think, and, uh, and understand our own selves in relation to ide- uh, ideologies. So before we get into... That was a lengthy blah, 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 wasn't it? Before we get into... Yes. Before we get into three or four different uh, signs to know whether you're absorbed into an ideology... Uh, he keeps saying ideology. I say ideology, isn't that... He's from California. I'm from the Midwest and uh, and Canada before that. So ideology is the way you really want to go, folks. Go ahead. Actually, we're ba- we're baking into our podcast an ideological framework based around how do you <laughs> based around the, which way do you say ideology? That is so cool. So, <laughs> so what are some other examples before we get into different signs? Uh, one would be kind of uh, political uh, orientations, whether it's toward big government, small government, what that might mean for taxation purposes. Uh, big military, small military. What are some other examples? Well, um, ideological stances. Yeah, I mean, or positions. What is it about evangelical white Christianity that we are so attached to uh, capitalism, low taxation, individualism, uh, when it appears that those things would seem to be so against what Jesus taught? Well, there's an ideology at work that we got. Uh, uh, put into that sees the way life is supposed to be and Christianity got attached to it. Same thing with, with racism. Uh, so much of what we think about the other or race, even race itself, are categories that pit us against one another over various defensive issues, economic issues, um, privilege issues. And so uh, we need to discern when actually we're getting caught up in ideologies and actually we are now working to be against somebody and to win a war of an ideology as opposed to the reconciliation and the renewal and the unity and diversity that God is doing in his people. Ideology works against that. So a couple more examples. One in theology 
might be our understanding of Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 11 can often be an ideological, you can step into an ideological landmine or a minefield um, when you bring up Genesis 1 through 11, uh, the days of creation, historical Adam. Those topics are usually litmus tests for other commitments that you either do or Who's do not in have. and who's out? Do you affirm inerrancy the way I do? The inerrant do Bible. Who's in and who's out? It's us against the liberals. We affirm the inerrant Bible. What does the inerrant Bible really mean? It means we believe in the Bible. Oh, but it means we believe in it in a certain way. And how does that work out in terms of our actual living uh, the Christian life? and how central it is to the gospel, that's questionable. Um, but, you know, we all agree biblical authority is important, how we understand the authority of the Bible in our lives. But inerrancy has become detached from that and become an ideological object which we use to pit us against those who don't believe the same way we do. Uh, and how we do church, whether you're a charismatic church or a seeker-sensitive church or a liturgical church, oftentimes your worship setting and styles um, can become very ideologically driven so that the people in charge, you just have to keep doing it this way because this creates the results that we want and there's no questioning, there's no uh, innovation, we just need to stick with what it is. We even had um, a church uh, plant go out from us. We, I think we shared this in another uh, podcast where uh, the church, some people in the church plant wanted to do worship exactly like we did it at Life on the Vine, uh, and that was almost an ideological commitment when our commitment was that, no, every liturgy in church should have a, uh, a contextualization of what you're doing here appropriate to the, the context you're in, not just some sort of uh, bland repetition of, of where we are at. Right. So do you have one or two more examples or well, should we move forward? I just, just want people to understand that if you, you know, leaders, pastors, if you're ever leading in a church situation and people just seem to be stuck on one thing and it, you notice that it really doesn't mean anything, it's just people have grounded their identity and their sense of who they are and their sense of security in that one thing and they cannot move. And, and, and as insane as it is, they're holding on to this. This these are the kind of things at work. It's really not about the truth of the actual idea. It is the way the idea has been grounded in one's identity and understanding over against another people, and there's antagonism at work, and it keeps them in, locked in that relationship that way, and that's their place of security. So we need to dislodge ideologies. We need to dislodge antagonisms. Because they're not of the gospel. Antagonism, war against another person, me set over against another person, divisions for the sake of divisions, for ideas, that's not the way the gospel works. So my contention is not only when we engage the world outside the church, our communities, our neighborhoods, but also when we engage even inside our church, there are times when we need to dislodge, disrupt the ideology as part of our leadership process. So before we get to the idea of how to dislodge the ideologies that maybe are at work in our communities that create uh, misunderstanding, the inability to communicate, what are some of the top signs to know when you yourself are maybe captive to an ideology or maybe others are? What are some of the top signs? Oh, I put this top on, three. I put this on Facebook the other day. I said the top three signs are excessive emotion at the person's who disagree with you. So if you dare challenge 
um, the uh, ideology, let's say, inerrancy, and ask questions about it, people get angry and maybe upset, and, and, and then when they prove you wrong, they have a little bit of vengeful enjoyment or something. That's a sign that an ideology is at work. Second uh, sign, inability to take the other side of the argument with any degree of seriousness. Hear the other person and not stigmatize them into a set position, but actually hear what they're saying. If you automatically stigmatize the other person, that's a sign that uh, this person is involved in an ideology. And then lastly, a naive assuming that your position is true, never having checked any facts or, or any uh, background, it's just, we believe in the inerrant Bible. Where did that come from? We don't know. We just believe in it. Uh, do you, have, you, have you ever, what would it look like for there to be an error in the Bible? We don't know. So it's become more of a position as opposed to anything, a grounding belief that does any work in your life and your practice of your faith in Christ. So I would just add to that. Those are good. The excessive emotions, inability to see the other side. And then, you know, and then the reverse of that, which is assuming your side doesn't have any problems. I, I think I would just add is all of these, in a sense, dehumanize the people you're engaged with. So what you end up with is not just a disagreement, but uh, those people are stupid or those people are evil or, uh, I can, you know, statements offhand statements. I can't even believe anyone thinks like that. Or doesn't everybody think like this? And you have these totalizing statements, which ends up being very dehumanizing. When you're saying those things, or when you're hearing those things said to you, chances are high that you're in that you're touching some sort of ideological framework. Um, and then the other one that I would say is when you're in the midst of dialogue, is uh, sometimes there's this the inability to lose the argument, and so you just go from one argument to another, to another, to another. Um, none of which are consistent together, but the per you are just trying to grasp after not losing. And so you just keep shifting your maneuvers yeah. until you can just wear the other person and, out. And so really, like, you know, pastors, leaders, people who are shaping their lives into a community of Christ and you're and you gotta lead, uh, you're gonna come up against these situations over and over and over again. You're gonna be actually caught up in them yourselves. And because it's so hard, it's so human. To like form your opinion and form your identity and understand yourself and your emotions in relation to how you feel over against the other side. And it actually makes you feel good. It actually makes you feel like you're accomplishing something. It gives you a reason to live. All this stuff is, is ideological process formation in ourselves, but it's not of God. It's, it's how we live in autonomy from God in Christ and what he's doing to gather all people to live in his presence and out of who he is, his person and work in Jesus Christ for the world. So you say that, uh, so these are different signs of ideology. So the question is, is not just how do we become aware of it ourselves, but what can we do about some of these ideological situations that we find ourselves in, when it seems like we're no longer communicating with each other, when it seems like we're villainizing one another, how do we then step into those places and do something new? Yeah. So here again on Facebook, Dave Fitch, I think, I don't know what my actual Facebook page reads. Is it? Uh, <laughs> I think but, it's Dave Fitch. Uh, on Facebook the other day, 
I said that uh, I think leaders need to be provocateurs. Um, our culture and our church life needs to have the ability, uh, leaders need to be able to dislodge or disrupt the hold of an ideology on our lives and open up a space for engagement. But I said, it's not enough to be a provocateur. That, that a, truly a leader must be able to be present long enough in a situation that they can lead somewhere to a place of discernment. What's going on here? What is God doing here? Where is he going to take us? So leaders need to be more than provocateurs. They need to be provocateurs, but they need to be leaders of, I, I call, unanxious presence. They need to be present with and in the middle of the struggle to lead it to someplace new by the discernment of the Holy Spirit. The non-anxious presence, that actually comes from... Uh, Edwin Friedman. Friedman. The fail, failure of nerve. Failure of yeah. nerve. Okay, right. I love right. that phrase. The non, well, and I think the non-anxious presence, living in the peace of Christ, is in a sense a witness to having at least worked through and become aware of your own ideological commitments, whether it's around certain theological doctrines, political positions... Uh, how it is that you maintain your house or raise your children, uh, when you can live at peace and not be anxious, not have anxiety over criticisms, over pushback, over failures, uh, that is witnessing to the, li the life of Christ within you. Yes. And the goal is to then bring a non-anxious presence uh, into the lives of others. But you do that, you have to do that by provoking. You kind of need to poke. So yeah. You need to be like, we need to look at this more. But right. nobody wants to look at it. They so, just want to be right. So uh, a lot of people think I'm just provoking for the sake of provoking on Facebook when I'll ask questions. But I actually think that's good practice to just ask questions uh, that provoke, that open up uh, the possibility for another way. A lot of people say third way. You know, it's it's this way or this way. It's either you're with me or you're against me. Well, what about this? Another way to provoke is to... Um, to, uh, I, I call it throwing a bomb in the room. I mean, sometimes I will just um, say something to its extreme, its excess, to make a point that uh, to get people to dislodge from the way they've always thought about something trapped within this ideology. A good example is the other night in sexual ethics when, um, when we're talking about romanticist desire versus ideological desire and people are having a hard time thinking about marrying somebody they're not hopelessly in love with and they don't have this romantic attraction to. And I, and I you know, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, who, uh, again, we... Famously uh, says... Uh, Stanley says, oh my uh, <laughs> Stanley says uh, uh, you always marry the wrong person. And if you think you're marrying the right person, give it a five years, you know, and you will find out that you have married the wrong person because the idea of marrying the right person is logically absurd, assuming human beings change and grow they will change and grow. So if you get, if you're trying to marry somebody because they meet my needs, I'm wildly attracted to what they look like, feel like, make me feel, blah blah blah. Give it two years and that'll change. So Stanley's trying to say, dislodge romantic love as the ultimate reason for being in a marriage. And so he takes things to the excess. You, you always marry the wrong person, and that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the kind of. Uh, 
throwing a grenade or a bomb in the room by saying something like that. That takes a lot of theological skill, but I believe it's it's and an important boldness. part of provoking. Yeah, it takes a lot of boldness, uh, the ability to sit within people's very uncomfortable reactions when you're seeking to draw them out along those things. Yeah, but it's important, and so um, then 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 in the midst of. Uh, and of course, this is all I really, I mean, Jesus did it all the time, right? And a lot of times he didn't say anything, and then he would wait, and then he'd draw the absurd out of it. Mm. I'm trying to think of an occasion now, because i got at least three of these texts in mind. But, you know, the most, the most obvious one was John 8. The, uh, I don't know if we did this on the last podcast, and I know it's not a canonical text, but when Jesus says, when they're all ready to stone the... Uh, um, the adulterer in John chapter 8 and they're all going yeah we're going to take out all our anxiety on her and the, and, the, and the Pharisees say to ask Jesus do you believe according to the Moses, Mosaic law we should stone her or we shouldn't stone her and Jesus refuses to answer draws the line in the sand and then finally says he who is without sin cast the first stone now that's a bit of an absurdity obviously no one's without sin He's drawing this, this pattern out. He's revealing what's going on. And they flitter away, and all the antagonism goes away, and the woman is there in the presence of Christ. That's an example of, of exposing and revealing and dislodging the ideology and opening up a space for God to work in the presence of Christ. So there's two moves in that non-canonical. Sorry, Scott McKnight. We're going to have you on our, our podcast very soon now, but I know you disagree. Which is fine. He disagrees but with using that text. The two, the two moments there. The first one is that Jesus didn't disengage and leave. He didn't. He didn't say, "I don't want any part of your stupid dispute. This is childish behavior. Get over yourselves." Yes. Uh, so he didn't do that, and he didn't enter into the terms of the debate in which they were given to him. Right. But he stayed there, presence, and he started, you know, almost doing something else. You know, what was he doing in the sand? You know, it's we hard don't to know. know. We could speculate, right? Maybe he was just trying to figure out what to say, but it. All that to say is he stayed engaged, and then the second, so he stayed present, but then the second point is, is then he challenged the framework um, within which it was asked, but he did it very subversively. Um, and so staying present, but then engaging to subvert, um, this is <coughs> ways of, of working toward the ideology, because it never works to to look at somebody and name their ideology and hope to, and expect them to, to get over it. It right. just about never works. That's like going up to someone and be like, you're, you know you're a whor horrible sinner. Stop sinning. The, the first response you're going to get is, no, I'm not. Right? You're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, you're not going to get attack. anywhere by confronting the ideology directly, in the words of Slavoj Žižek. You know, uh, I'm preaching this Sunday at Peace of Christ Church on, I think it's Matthew 15, the uh, episode where the Canaanite woman is coming up to Jesus asking for healing, and he calls her a dog. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Canaanites were, were the people that were defeated by the Israelites. And, and somehow, Jesus, there's an ideology that Israel is here for themselves. We're the holy people. The rest of the world are going to hell, you know. And, and of course, Jesus is saying, no, Israel, you lost your mission. mission. Your mission is for the world. And so to snap the disciples out of it, he calls the Canaanite woman a dog, an extreme, excessive, um, um, uh, this woman is not even human. She's a dog. She doesn't uh, even, you know, it's a very slang term for uh, a Canaanite Gentile. And then he, and then the woman says, but even dogs eat from the crumbs of the table. Right. And Jesus heals her and says, your faith. He tries to show 
uh, he tries to reveal how absurd it is to the disciples. So there's two ways to read that text is people can just be like, oh my, well, this shows that Jesus himself was captive to the ideology of Jewish racism and whatnot. Or, or maybe Jesus was a jerk. Because look, sometimes, you know, or you could say with Zizek that he was over-identifying with the ideology to show how absurd it is. And so when he says that, he's not condemning the woman. He's look, you know, it's almost as if he's not looking at the woman when he says that. He's looking at everyone else. So he could speak something that on the one hand they would approve of, but on another makes them cringe because it's like, oh, that's what we think, but no one should really say that out loud. That's embarrassing that Jesus right. just said it out loud, what we all think, right? So he's doing this, this maneuver to help expose, but in a way that people can really you know, engage with their different ideological commitments. Yeah. So next week... Uh, our, at our next podcast, we're going to talk about the theology of conflict because these go hand in hand is how do you engage with conflict is very similar to how do you um, uproot uh, ideologies. There's no good ide uprooting of ideologies unless you're very skilled. Are at we done here? Conflict. Yeah, we're pretty much we're, done. We're done. So I'm wrapping it up. So did you can have... I give a, can I give a book? Yes. Okay. Well, well oh, okay. Forgive me for this, but my book, The End of Evangelicalism, question mark, uh, is basically... The end of Evangelicalism? The end of evangelicalism, question mark. It's a, it's a bit of a... Uh, no, you need to say it in such a way that they know that the question mark's involved with your statement. Oh, the end of evangelicalism? There we go. Okay, so, the, but the point is, uh, I write extensively on ideology and how it works within the evangelical church and how it's ruining us and really setting us off against other, other uh, for mission and, and getting us caught in all these antagonisms, and I give some strategies for how to deal with that ideology. So if you're interested more in this topic, I just urge you to go out, run out, and buy it, and, uh, and uh, I, I don't make a whole lot of money on it, so there's just, just no, no, no mischievous uh, motives going on here. This podcast is brought to you by Dave Fitch and all of his books that he wants you to buy. No, all right. Well, it is a great book, and it exposes. What are the three different things you look at? You look at inerrant Bible, Christian nation, and decision for Christ, and how all these kind of end up being boundary markers, and how you define who's in and who's out, um, and they become very disconnected from the actual stories of Scripture and, and life God's doing and, life. and the Christian life. Yeah, it is. Awesome. It's great. It's a good book. So now we're going to do a slight different. Topic because both Dave and I, I I'm, I'm springing this on, both Dave and I are in the midst of. Are we going into the coursework. next podcast? No. Uh, we're both in the midst of cor coursework, so we haven't been doing a lot of extra reading. So instead of what you're reading, we're going to do what you're thinking about. What are you thinking about, Dave? I'll start. Through our classwork and things, um, I've really been thinking about the humanity of Jesus. Oftentimes, we always want to prove to ourselves and to others the divinity of Jesus. A lot of times we can move over the humanity of Jesus, how Jesus fully entered into all that we experience and suffer. His emotions uh, were similar to ours, his physical ability, even his spiritual needs uh, expressed in prayer. And how uh, a lot of times, and we were talking about this in class just yesterday, about how we deny the humanity of Christ often because uh, those of us in the West um, who are established in power um, want to affirm the creeping kind of divine status of Jesus. And we forget that the specific humanity of Jesus, he came as a poor uh, worker, worked with his hands, came from a poor family, came from a marginalized region in uh, Galilee and these types of things. He, was a, he crossed borders. And so what was the particular humanity and what that might mean for our own salvation? So this is something I've been thinking 
quite a bit about is making sure that I fully remember the blood, sweat, tears, hopes of the human being, Jesus Christ, as well as the full divinity of the second person of the Trinity um, and how we think about those things. So that's what I've been thinking about, trying to mull that over uh, with a bunch of great students over the last couple weeks. What have you been thinking about? I know you always think about ideology, but what have you been thinking about? Wait a minute, dude. Like, uh, okay, so I don't always think about ideology. (laughs) Just on every day that ends in Y. No, that's not true. Uh, But um, uh, last night we uh, started a lecture on gender, and uh, I talked about three things that Christianity brings. Like, every culture has a formation of gender, but three things... Three things Christianity brings to every culture in relation to gender. One, our physical bodies matter, contra to Gnosticism in Christianity because of the incarnation. Our bodies matter. We don't separate gender from our bodies. Ergo, the humanity of Christ is important. Exactly. Gender, second gender uh, relations are mutualist, that the entire trajectory of the history of the Bible, the scripture is teaching us that hierarchy is a malformation, therefore... uh, uh, and it's overturned in Christ. So we are overturning hierarchy in gender relations. And then lastly... Wait, gender relations, also the humanity of Christ. He is a male. How is it that his maleness is subverting the ideology of patriarchy? Topic for future discussion. Continue. And then lastly, uh, I said, uh, Jesus overcomes the antagonisms between sexes. Difference is not formed out of war, but out of mutuality. So those are the three things that Christianity brings into every culture that reshapes how we think about gender. And I think I started a conversation, and we're well on now, to uh, developing further understandings of gender and uh, Christianity. So, hey, if you want to study sexual ethics or Christology and systematic theology at Northern Seminary, (laughs) uh, just come our way, right, Jeff? Uh, uh, You want to give a little commercial for the MATM? Uh, I could, but uh, you just did, so we'll we'll call it that. We're uh, broadcasting from Northern Seminary here at the library. At the Griffiths Conference Room. And we do love We're at 73 degrees. We love theology, but we also love mission, and we love talking about how the two relate together. If uh, you enjoy our podcast, we would really value you sharing it, you going to iTunes or Stitcher or other places to subscribe to it, and please write a review. That is the best way to let people know what you think of us is by writing a review. So please do that. Uh, We will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Goodbye.